Please turn in your Bibles to this morning's scripture, Colossians 3, verse 12 through 17. If you'd like to follow along using a pew Bible, you could find the passage on page 984. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Hear the word of the Lord. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Shape and fashion us in your likeness, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Our sermon today will focus on verses 15 through 17. I wanted to read the context, and so we began in some of what we covered last week, but we'll start at verse 15 today. Earlier in the service, when we commissioned those who were involved in uh, the education world, it was a reminder to us that the relaxed days of summer are coming to an end and that the fall semester is ramping up for our families and for those that are involved in that industry that will be going back to work. For Sharon and our household, that means lots of evening recitals and concerts will begin again and as a result, a portion of her wardrobe that has been hidden for three months will come back out again as well. And on any given evening this fall, she's going to emerge from getting ready in all formal black. And I'm going to say something like, all dressed up and no place to go, huh? <laughs> Basically indicating that it's too bad that she's going to work and not out on a date with me looking like that. Well, of course, the reality is that going out on a date for us usually means jeans and a t-shirt and not formal black attire, but I can dream. <laughs> Last week, we explored what it means to be dressed in the virtues of Christ, having taken off the filthy rags of the old self and putting on, as was read, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience putting up with one another, forgiving one another. 
And above all these other virtues, the final piece that we are to put on that brings the whole outfit together is love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now that we're all dressed up and ready to go, what's next? Where do we go from here? Well, Paul continues to make practical application from the rich theology that he has taught us in this book so far. And he focuses in on the church and its dealings with one another as those who are raised in Christ. Reading again verse 15, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Paul explains that we now have a new calling in how we are to interact with fellow believers. First, we're called to peace with one another. This progression from love in the previous verse to peace now in verse 15 follows the very same pattern in the parallel passage we've been looking at in the letter of the Ephesians in chapter 4, 1 through 3, where Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Living in peace and unity as the family of God is, is a natural outflow of what Paul has challenged the Colossians with up to this point in the letter. And it is culminated, of course, as we've seen with that all-encompassing virtue of love. The word rule here has with it the idea of someone acting as a judge or an umpire. It's in a it has a sense of the, that the peace of Christ is to umpire or referee the affairs of God's people. So the rule, the rule in your heart's distinction is not, as F.F. Bruce points out, a sentiment of an individual's being at peace with oneself, and certainly that's a reality as we're in Christ, but rather here it is to allow peace to be the controlling mediator of conflicts and disagreements within the church. So we must exercise peace in our dealings with one another with sincerity in a way that reflects the peace that we have personally in Christ. And this is not a go-along-to-get-along mentality at all. It's born out of a genuine, heartfelt desire because these are my brothers and sisters. We've all been saved from our sins. We're all a work in progress. And I'm going to let the peace of Christ that he has given to me, I'm going to let that be the governing force in all of my interactions with my family of faith. This peace isn't something that we muster up when needed. It'll be too late at that point. Rather, it comes from a heart that is already at peace with God. Paul doesn't say, put on peace, as he did the other virtues. He says, let the peace of Christ rule. Do you remember how the grand hymn in chapter 1 concluded? Listen to these words. For in him, Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Peace with God is only attainable through the blood of the cross. It was there that Jesus died for our sins, satisfying the judgment of God that we might obtain peace with him, reconciliation. So if you're not looking to Christ alone for your peace with God, but instead you're hoping to kind of make it work in your own terms, you have no hope of living life in the peace of Christ. You must first come to him in faith for salvation. One of the membership vows that we take as members of St. Andrews and the broader Presbyterian Church in America is the promise to pursue the peace and purity of the church. This is coming right from our passage today. This is what it means to be part of the community. And again, this doesn't eliminate conflict or disagreement, and it's not a call to bury our heads in the sand and to pretend like nothing's going on. It's also not about running away from conflict or avoiding it. But peace is there, in the middle of it, like an umpire at a sporting event, as the overarching rule that keeps it all in check. And once peace leaves the room, we're no longer living according to Jesus' desire for his church. And we better call a timeout and pause and hit reset. Paul continues in the passage with a, a parallel statement in verse 17. He started with, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, and then he moves to, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Secondly, we're called to invest in one another with the word of Christ, with singing and with thankfulness. Paul begins this verse in the corresponding passage of Ephesians 5, there's a lot of parallels here today, by telling us the foundation of the church's song. Here he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And in Ephesians 5, 18, he says, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Our singing that we do together in this room is an outpouring of being filled with the Word of God and the Scriptures, the Gospel, and of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Worship in song is a natural response to understanding the glory of the gospel and serves as one of the primary means of worshiping God when we gather for that purpose. And not only that, but what we sing should be empowered by the Spirit and informed with the truth of God's word. Spirit-filled worship is not mindless emotionalism. Nor is it merely a time to gather more theology and information into our heads. For the Spirit does not operate apart from the Word. They go together. Knowledge apart from the work of the Holy Spirit can actually harden one's heart 
towards God. The Spirit supernaturally takes the seed of the Word, beginning there, beginning with God's truth found in His Word, and supernaturally does a miracle in our hearts with it, causing it to sprout and to grow and to transform us. To reduce our singing in worship simply to an experience that makes me cry or an instructional time is to fall way short of God's intent for it. Christ-centered worship is bringing together of all the transforming means of grace, prayer, word, both reading and preaching, and the sacraments, undergirded with the God-ordained vehicle of singing for the pleasure of God and for the good of his people. Translations differ in this verse, and a decision has to be made as to whether the nouns, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs modify teaching and admonishing, or they modify singing. Well, in the first instance, the various types of songs would be how the teaching and admonishing is done. In the second instance, the teaching and admonishing could be something separate from the singing. The first instance, however, that of connecting our singing to teaching, matches the Ephesians 5 passage. Remember what it said there, that we are addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And additionally, the whole aspect of this one anothering that Paul is teaching in both Ephesians and Colossians lends itself to that argument as well. Douglas Moo concludes then that Paul wants the community to teach and admonish each other by means of various kinds of songs, and he wants them to do this singing to God with hearts full of gratitude. This is a beautiful aspect of our singing to one another that I think we often miss. This idea of teaching and correcting one another. Singing in our worship service is not an opportunity for us to ignore everyone else around us and to get into a private Holy Spirit zone with ourselves. No, it's much bigger and better than that. There is an what another aspect to it. Every Lord's Day, all of us enter into this room in a different place, a different situation, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, different struggles, different levels of maturity in our Christian walk. Perhaps there's somebody today near you who is struggling with sin, and they're discouraged. Maybe they want to give up. Well, you sang these words from our psalm of confession to them earlier. Come, hear his voice today. Receive what love imparts. His holy will obey and harden not your heart. His ways are best and lead at last all troubles past to perfect rest. Amen. Or what about the lady two pews over who is suffering unimaginable pain in her life? Maybe the loss of a relationship, death of a loved one, physical suffering that is almost impossible to endure. and has been brought very low. You probably don't have any idea what to even say to someone in those situations. Everything you think of sounds trite and very unhelpful. What can you do? Well, what about these words 
that you and the rest of your brothers and sisters sang just a few moments ago based on our verses of the year from Lamentations. And when the storms swirl and rage, there are mercies anew. In affliction and pain, you will carry me through. And at the end of my days, when your throne fills my view, I will sing of your mercies anew. What hope? What hope for the trials of life now and what hope for the future in our eternity with Christ when we're with him? These are words of encouragement and words of hope for one another. Do you see what it is that we do here each Lord's Day? These are real-life scenarios, no doubt represented in this room now. You're not just singing a few songs to get yourself pumped up and emotionally ready for the sermon. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, you're singing the truths of God's word into one another's lives, teaching, and yes, rebuking when needed. We need to hear the gospel sung to us every week when we come together to worship. So how does understanding this change your approach to singing on Sunday mornings? I think that the ceiling would not be able to contain our song. Smiles and tears of joy and gladness would be everywhere in the room as we understand what it is that we're embarking on and involved in every Sunday when we gather. So come each Sunday ready to encourage one another and ready to receive encouragement from your brothers and sisters. The investment of the word of Christ into one another happens not only from the pulpit and the preaching of God's word, and yes, that was where the primacy of the preaching is, and that is the important point of the day for sure, but it also is happening there in the pew, in the congregational singing, as you are ministering to one another. Paul tells us. The primary singing voice in a church's worship is that of the congregation, not the choir, not the band, not the praise team or the singers up front. They are here to facilitate the voice of the whole church, not replace it. Each of you must do your part in singing the praises of Christ in this important role. A healthy church is a singing church, and communities of faith whose song has been taken away by the professionals up front must reclaim what is theirs by birthright. For singing is very powerful. It can move us. One need only attend a sporting event or a concert to understand that truth. But singing also helps us to remember things long after we hear them, doesn't it? I still sing the alphabet song to myself at this age. <laughs> well, here's another test. How many of you can quote from anything from one of the thousands of sermons preached by Charles Wesley? Anyone? But how many of you can sing some of the words to Hark the Herald Angels Sing? Or Christ the Lord is Risen Today? Or Oh for a Thousand Tongues to Sing? And I could go on and on. Wesley's legacy wasn't in his sermons, although God used him in his preaching at his time, but his legacy is in his hymns that we've been singing for hundreds of years. Often when folks, especially believers, come to the end of their lives and they've forgotten everything, their, their memory is gone, they, they have no recollection, they can't even remember their family members' names. 
more often than not, they remember their songs. They remember the hymns of their faith and those things that they grew up with. The Lord knew what he was doing when he commanded us to do this. These are the things we take with us. Our theology is structured by what we sing. And that's a way that we can remember those truths. And singing is also part of what it means to be created in the image of God. Did you know that God sings? In Zephaniah 3, the prophet describes a very dire time in the life of the nation of Israel. But then he says this, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God, in, the res in response to the redemption of his people, rejoices over us with loud singing. When we sing together the praise of God in this place, we are exemplifying one of the aspects of being image bearers of God. Paul continues and he gives us three descriptors in the passage for the kinds of songs that we should be singing in church. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I've studied this all my life. And scholars are all over the place and disagree as to what the precise meanings of these words are. And I don't think we really know fully what Paul is specifically indicating here. But I'm not sure that's really the point anyway. Certainly we know what he means by psalms. There are 150 of them. Hymns are generally considered to be those songs outside of the Bible that exalt and worship the Trinity. Spiritual songs perhaps could be songs of testimony, songs of deliverance, and at one time were perhaps even spontaneous songs from the Holy Spirit. In any case, Paul seems to be saying that there are a variety of types of songs that can be used in our response to who God is. Here at St. Andrews, we desire to use the divine hymnal, the book of Psalms, as well as the best of what's been written by the church over the past 2,000 years. Songs from the past and songs from the present. We represent the diversity of these songs even by their placement and titles within the worship order. Hymns or psalms of worship, confession, commitment, assurance, preparation, response. All of these hymns or songs are carefully chosen not only to support the preaching and the passage of the day, but to also give you, the congregation, the appropriate words to give back to God at a particular point in our order of worship. And in all of this, we are committed to singing the word of God. For Paul has told us, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. John Piper says, the question we need to ask today is this. If the teaching in our church was limited to the songs that we sing how well taught would we be? How well would we know God? We should make it our aim not only to preach the whole counsel of God, but to sing it as well.
While it's true that our singing serves to teach and admonish one another, notice that I didn't say that our songs are only directed toward one another. Because Paul says in verse 16 that the audience of our singing is God. We are to sing to God in thankfulness. There is, however, a beautiful byproduct of our singing to God. As our praises rise heavenward to the throne of God, he is pleased to allow his blessings to fall upon his people. And there is this one another aspect of teaching, admonishing, encouraging one another in our faith, even as we direct our worship to whom it is due rightfully. God's people have always been a singing people. There are at least 400 references in the scriptures to singing and over 50 direct commands to do so. We are commanded over and over again to sing in corporate worship. We found it in our call to worship today. And the largest book of the Bible is a hymnal. Don't allow yourselves to be robbed of participating in our corporate singing by a perceived inability on your part of not being able to sing. Because God doesn't call just the skilled to do it. He calls all of us to worship him in song. Pastor and contemporary hymn writer Bob Coughlin of Sovereign Grace says this, Remember, worship is a state of heart. Musical sound is a state of art. Let's not confuse them. The critical question is not, do you have a voice, but do you have a song? I've heard it said that our worship here is a rehearsal for eternity and our worship there. Apostle John, of course, gives us a glimpse of that in the book of Revelation. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. I suspect on that day, none of us will hold back our voices. There will be no spectators in that service of worship. No voiceless saints in that grand song. Well, what are we waiting for? The reality that is to come has already been secured in Christ. Do we not have something to sing about now? Are we not already saved and raised to new life in him, as Paul has taught us already? New creatures dressed in the robes of Christ's righteousness and in his attributes? Has he not already blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? We must not keep silent in our song, for he is worthy of our loudest praise, even now on this side of eternity. Reading in verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Our final point is that we are called to serve one another in word, in deed, and in thankfulness. Verse 17 serves really as kind of a summary of this passage back to verse 12 that we began reading today. Again, in the parallel passage in Ephesians in chapter 5, we 
Paul concludes with these words, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Jesus showed us what it means to serve one another in word and in deed when he lived among us. He did it perfectly. You remember the story when the disciples were arguing over who was going to be greatest in his kingdom in Matthew 20. Jesus rebuked them with these words. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, and as we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another in our songs, so too we must humbly serve one another in word and in deed even as our Savior demonstrated when he walked among us. Verses 15 through 17 that we're studying today, did you notice, also form a trio of thanksgiving to God in this one another calling. Every verse ended with being thankful to God. Paul is preoccupied with the importance of being thankful. We shouldn't pass by that without taking notice. Thankfulness and gratitude are critical to successful relationships in the church. Henry Ward Beecher said this, The unthankful heart discovers no mercies, but let the thankful heart sweep through the day, and as the magnet finds the iron, so it will find in every hour some heavenly blessings. Would others describe you as one who is a thankful person or one who is ungrateful? As we cultivate our being raised with Christ, may he fill us with gratitude and may we exhibit that thankfulness to one another. Paul instructs us to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. We can be empowered by the Holy Spirit to live out this new life in Christ. It's not a fantasy. Paul is hitting us right where we are and challenges us that through the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit, we can live this way. We can walk in him as we seek to do everything in his name. So you'll remember that Paul spent chapters 1 and 2 challenging the doctrinal error and the theological tagalongs that weigh us down with a gospel plus faith. Then he exalted Jesus Christ as the sufficient preeminent all in all of his people who will find him to be enough for our lives. And after this correction, he prepared the way for a call to action by exhorting us to take off the former garments of sin and death and as God's chosen ones, holy and loved, to put on the attributes of Christ, bearing, forgiving, loving one another. And in times of conflict, 
to let the peace of Christ take charge, ruling in all matters pertaining to our unity. And in all of this, we are to be anchored by a mutual sense of immense gratitude in our hearts. And when we come together, we are to sing. To sing the truth of the word of Christ, being spirit-filled from one glad heart to another, always with an eye to worshiping God while instructing and correcting one another. All dressed up in the attributes of Christ and no place to go? Absolutely not. Our faith is a practical, real, and living faith that impacts every aspect of our dealings with one another. And as we dress ourselves in Christ, our calling is to be at peace with one another in him, in unity and in thankfulness, to invest in one another with the word of Christ, with singing and with thankfulness, and to serve one another in word, in deed, and in thankfulness. Jesus is more than enough for this calling in one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the instruction that we receive. And Lord, I pray that you would enable us to live in love, to live in peace with one another, and in harmony. And may we exhibit that by taking the new song that you have planted in our hearts at salvation and express that song in our singing with one another as a testimony to the watching world and as an encouragement and an exhortation to one another to be those who have been raised in Christ and have put on in newness of life his attributes. We pray in his name. Amen.